Well, we're continuing our study through 2 Corinthians. Today's study is titled, Preference for Heaven, Courage for Now. So open your Bibles with me to the end of chapter 4. We're going to be studying in chapter 5, but to give us some context and a a running start into chapter 5, let's begin our reading in chapter 4, verse 16. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Follow along as I read. Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Chapter 5. For we know that if the earthly tent which is our house is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house, Paul speaking of the body, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight, we are of good courage. I say and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, We also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. These are the hope-giving words of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for the wonder of Your Word. These concepts of heaven and the new body and and Your plan for eternity are mind-boggling, but they're true. And we find great hope in them because you promise such blessing, such goodness, the presence of God forever, free of tear and sorrow, full of worship. You promise these things to the people who follow after you, those who repent of sin and believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Lord, today we ask that you Increase our understanding with wisdom from above and strengthen our faith that we might find the hope and the power and the joy of what you have planned in the days ahead and indeed for all eternity. Thank you, Lord, for your wonderful word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We see in chapter 5 that Paul begins with these three words, for we know... One cannot help but notice, as has been the case all through the prior four chapters, the absolute certainty with which Paul speaks. There's a tremendous level of conviction that defines the way he expresses his faith and his Christian beliefs. 
as we dive into our study today, and, and even as we continue all throughout this book, it is well worth us pausing and pausing often to evaluate the certainty of our faith and to challenge ourselves to an even more sure confidence in the Word and person of God. Don't be afraid to search the Scriptures, to test what you read, and to look to God for wisdom. We test our faith. We, we search the Scriptures and test the Scriptures. We want to be like the Bereans who searched for certain truth. It's well worth us being honest with ourselves and with the Scriptures. We know that faith is weakened when the shadows of doubt and fear cast themselves upon the very spiritual realities that we are going to look at today. And indeed, that we've been looking at in the prior four chapters. We speak of heaven and eternity, but how often does the word know, I know, enter our vocabulary when discussing these awesome truths? When we say, I believe, there should be no wavering or timidity. And Paul begins this portion of his letter to the church of Corinth with these three words, for we know. This is not a wishful hope. It's not an educated guess. It is not even a spiritual inclination or a feeling. This is the truth that he sees with clarity when he listens to the words of God. These are the truths that he believes to be fully true, to be most credible and to be well worth trusting in. And Paul goes on to say, for we know that if the earthly tent which is our house is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now before we break this down a little, let us be very clear with the fact that these are not just doctrinal truths. They are not just spiritual propositions that are recorded in the pages of some great spiritual book. Yes, we need to acknowledge and affirm these spiritual realities when they come up in Sunday school or in the sermons or in the devotional books we read, but we also need to embrace them all the time and to speak often of them and to let them regularly be on the forefront of our mind, influencing the way we think and live influencing our view of illness and physical suffering, influencing our views of even death, our views of purpose for life and meaning in life. These things should influence our perspectives for both ourselves and for others. These are Christian realities that should govern our thought processes and behaviors and even guide our emotions. As we dive into verse 1 here, we also remind ourselves first that these chapters that we have in our Bibles were not in the original letter that Paul wrote to Corinth. In a text like this especially, it would be easy to disconnect these verses from the end of the prior chapter where Paul just seconds ago talked about the reality of the outer man decaying. That's why we read those verses a minute ago. Unless Christ returns in our lifetime, you understand this, this body is going to decay and it is going to perish. That's reality. But as we saw last week, it is not the only reality. 
nor is it the governing reality. Paul said, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. And he points out that's the better reality. That's the reality that impacts both now and eternity. And so Paul continues here, here at the start of chapter 5 to develop this bodily reality, this bodily comparison, and he uses a house analogy. He likens the body to a house. It's the house of our soul. And he says, if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, and the reality is it will be torn down, it will decay. If it's torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And what we see is Paul is bringing out the scale again. And he's weighing these two realities side by side. We learn that these are invaluable comparisons that we are seeing in these chapters. Because they teach us how to view and handle the difficult physical, temporal realities that we are very much going through. These comparisons give us wisdom from above. And this perspective is not only better, it's realistic. So what's the comparison here? On the one side of the scale, we have our earthly body, which is decaying, is going to be turned, uh, torn down. And by the way, there's a sense in, in that, which that wording, torn down, indicates the very real possibility of a premature ending. We, we noted this last week. Paul's life was headed toward a premature ending. Instead of torn down, the ESV uses the word destroyed. And as history would have it, Paul would be martyred for his vibrant faith in Jesus Christ. Historians agree he was most likely beheaded. So we have the earthly dying tent on one side of the scale, and in contrast to it, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. First is the body in the short life, the next is the new body that believers receive when they die and God resurrects them and transforms them into their new body. So let's observe these three points, three or four points that Paul gives us on this heavenly body. First, it's a structure from God. My first thought is probably like yours. Well, isn't this body also from God? Didn't he make everything? And of course, yes, the answer is they are both from God. But there is something different about this new house from God. And it's, made, it's more clearly defined in the next phrase. A house not made with hands. One could certainly understand that to mean mom and daddy helped make this body, but ain't nobody going to help God make the body that's to come. The body that he will make all by himself in and for eternity. This next body is not going to be earthly. It's going to be heavenly. It's not going to come from the dust of the ground. Well, I don't know what God's going to make it from. But we know is that it will be a house not made with hands. Now, if we think of a literal house made by construction crews, any homeowner will tell you these houses start breaking down from day one. They're rolling their eyes over here already. We understand this. And that breakdown only accelerates as the years go by. Our, my family's house is 11 years old, 
And I had more than one friend welcome me to our 10th anniversary when they heard about the heat pump going out and the attic fan going out and the furnace going out and the fridge going out and the fridge going out and the fridge going out. <laughs> Whatever you do, don't take me sh fridge shopping with you. You don't want me anywhere close. The point is, every house made with human hands is a house that is decaying. Here's another point I like to ponder on this phrase. When God created the universe, did he use his hands? No, he used his voice. Love that. He spoke things into existence. It would be one thing to take matter that already exists and speak it into a form to construct something out of it. God went infinitely beyond that and he just spoke it into existence. Perhaps there's some of that alluded to in the phrase in this verse, not made with hands. The mind-blowing miracle of creation is going to happen again. And perhaps God will simply speak or will our new bodies into existence. You look forward to seeing that miracle? Now, of course, we're, we're clearly exploring, exploring beyond the intent of the text. But I see some value in smiling upon it and dream, dreaming about the power of God that will someday be revealed. But the text here, a house not made with hands, is almost certainly referring to human hands based on context. And again, every one of those houses breaks down and is ultimately destroyed. In contrast, the next phrase points out that our new house, our new body, will be eternal. Again, we've got a very short-lived existence on one side of the scale. What does James call it? A vapor. It's a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. And on the other side of the scale, we have a never-ending existence. Do we stop every once in a while to ponder how long that will be? I mean, to try and ponder. It's not a thousand lifetimes. It's not a hundred billion years. It's forever. It just keeps going and going and going without end. That's how long that new body will last. What a miracle God will create that day. And note the final phrase in verse 1. Eternal in the heavens. Every time I see a phrase like that, I think, thank God it's not eternal on the earth. In the midst of this pain and the sorrow and the decay and the evil... Have you ever thought about the, the early people in biblical history? I've pondered this a couple times. You know, even if I had the choice to live for several hundred years, I'm not sure I would take it. Both the massiveness of eternity and the location in eternity are invaluable factors in this new body. We begin to see why Paul says that the sufferings of this life are not even worthy to be compared with the glory to be revealed to us in heaven. This is Romans chapter 8, verse 18. You just can't compare 70 or 80 or even 90 or 100 years with eternity in heaven. Much more could be studied and could be discussed on this topic of our heavenly body. But in all honesty, there aren't a lot of verses to choose from. I'm sure God has ordained it to be that way. But the point of today's study isn't an in-depth analysis of the afterlife or that eternal body we're going to get. And let me give you this uh, Spurgeon quote that Guzik uses in his Bible commentary on this verse. Spurgeon said, 
If after that you desire to know more concerning this house, the eternal body, I can give you, I can but give you the advice which was given by John Bunyan in a similar case. One asked of Honest John a question which he could not answer, for the matter was not opened up in God's word, and therefore Honest John bade his friend live a godly life and go to heaven and see for himself. If you'd like to know more about that new body, repent and believe and see for yourself how we look forward to that day. And of course, that's the preacher's subtle way of saying, I don't know. <laughs> Verse 2, Paul is once again consistent. And there's a reason for this. He's consistent in acknowledging our present reality. He says, for indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. That's an insightful phrase there at the beginning of the verse. Paul says, in this house we groan, we moan, we ache and cry out in pain. And Paul prefaces this reality with what word? Indeed. He's meaning this is certainly the case. There is no doubt about this. While in this body, pain and sorrow are very real. Many of us have had the privilege of coming alongside a family member or friends when there was deep pain. We've all been there. And so has Paul. As we noted last week, he wasn't penning these letters from his air-conditioned mansion. He was writing from the place of suffering. In part, we find confidence in, this, in these words because he was living them. He was proving the power of God even as he penned them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Don't let any Christian, any pastor, any counselor, any spiritual salesman tell you that if you follow God, everything will go so much greater, quote-unquote, thinking of the things of this world. They often use the word blessing. God will bless you in the sense of you'll get that job or that home that you've always wanted. You'll get that wife and that family and the good health you've always dreamed of. No, actually, you and I may very well lose them. And God will give us something of far greater value. Something far beyond all comparison, chapter 4 says. But the momentary earthly reality is that we indeed groan in this house. Next phrase, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Christian friend, it is okay to long for heaven. When we're suffering, it's okay to ask, Lord, how long? Lord, I'd rather be with you right now. Lord, I'll take that heavenly body anytime you're ready to give it. Let's be real. There are times that we would rather be absent from the body and present with the Lord, like Paul said. I dare say that is a good and healthy desire. That's a godly desire. It's a realistic desire. That's a faith desire. What did Paul say in Philippians chapter 1, verses 23 and 24? I am hard-pressed from both directions, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. The people in Peru need to hear. The people in Kitsap and Pierce County need to hear. The point is simple here. 
it is good for us to desire heaven. My fear, my burden is for believers who don't long for heaven. My concern is that I don't long enough. For, my concern is for believers who are so enjoying the pleasures and comforts of this life that they don't want it, know what it means to spiritually groan. You can probe that thought in your own devotions or your salt groups. What does it mean to spiritually groan? Surely what Paul is saying is not just the verbal groan. This is, a, this is a groan that comes from his soul and happens to exit through his body. Verse 3, Inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. That is, when we die, when this body finishes decaying and is torn down, our soul, our spirit, our inner being will leave this body. And Paul says, we will not be found naked, meaning... We will not be bodiless. Paul is addressing a number of Greek philosophies and spiritual theories that to die and leave the body and join the spirit, the spirit world was the highest goal. It was the ultimate achievement. The Bible teaches us, however, that we do not become bodiless. We move from a mortal body to an eternal one, an immortal one. We will not go into a state of soul sleep or a nebulous spiritual infinity, as my study Bible calls it. There won't be this floating in the unknown middle period where our soul is naked, to use the clothing analogy that Paul has here. The Scripture says that when God's children put on the eternal body, they will not be found naked. These are stunning details. Even though they're coming in analogy form, details that give us glimpses into our eternal state. These are hopeful glimpses. These are empowering glimpses. And of course, the point of the text isn't to go into great detail, but to simply leave us with at least four very clear and powerful truths. One is the new body that believers receive will not be earthly, it will be heavenly. It will not be made by human hands, it will be made by God Himself. And it will not die, it will last forever in heaven. Those truths put our earthly, temporary, and very real sufferings in proper perspective. Verse 4, For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Paul, double, doubles, Paul doubles down on the reality of physical suffering again here. He says, indeed, while we're in this tent, this earthly body, we groan. And he adds, being burdened. That's the reality of life. And then there's another definition of his longing. He says, we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed. Now, I had to read and reread this verse. Write and rewrite my thoughts on these words. It wasn't until after I'd studied and then studied some more that I realized Paul isn't talking about the afterlife in, this, afterlife in this verse. He's talking about right now. How does the verse start, the phrase start? While we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed but to be clothed. He's saying right now. I'd love to have the immortal body right now. I want life to take over this decaying course of my earthly days. 
He says, I groan and I long for my heavenly body. Friends, do you recognize that these are the words of a suffering man? These are the words of a crying man. These are the words of a pastor, a leader, an apostle who is agonizing over what he is having to endure in this life. He says, we groan. Think about that. Groaning is what usually comes after we've cried and can't cry anymore. It comes after you've fought and don't think you'll be able to fight anymore. After studying the first four chapters of this book, it's easy to sometimes get the impression that Paul has all the answers and that Paul is strong. Paul's encouraged. That warrior is never giving up. If only we could all be more like him and be so spiritual that we don't feel pain. Everything feels small and looks little. If you read these first four verses again, you can almost hear Paul choking up and saying, you have no idea how badly I feel like giving up. Twice in these verses he spoke of groaning because once wasn't enough. These, are, these verses are the groanings of a burdened follower of Christ. This is Paul's reality, but it is reality in the balance. And there is something much greater, much weightier on the other side of the scale. Verse 5, he says, Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Every one of those key words is like a 10,000 pound weight. We study that short sentence and we very quickly learn that life's trials and events are not the result of chance. They are the result of purpose. And the purposes of life are not our own. They're driven by God. And God does, does not just purpose our circumstances and particularly our trials. He prepares us for them. There are three P's in this verse worth remembering. I love the word prepare. God makes sure we have everything we need in advance. In, in advance. That's God encouraged missionaries. That should encourage us when we look at tomorrow and next year. And God's calling for our lives, whether here or abroad. God makes sure we have everything we need in advance. He packs our bags for us. He charts our path. He measures our resources to make sure they match the future need. Nothing falls short and nothing surprises God. Nothing is coincidence. There is no risk with God. Because Almighty Sovereign God purposes and prepares. And notice further, the purposes of God are exact. Paul said God prepared us for this very purpose. This exact purpose. God pinpointed it in our lives. You and I would do well to take our current trials and remind ourselves, God knows exactly what He is doing in my life right now. If we have a wound, a tragedy, a hurt from the past, we would do well to remind ourselves, God knew exactly what He was doing in my life back then. And of course, looking forward, we can take our greatest fears of the future and remind ourselves, God knows exactly what He will do in my life when that time comes. And what is the very purpose that Paul is referring to? I have to believe that it's the sum total of everything he's just said. Outer decay, inner renewal. 
an eternal weight of glory. This earthly body and our heavenly body. This groaning and the victory. The mercy and the mission. Paul is talking about the life of following Christ. The mission. It's all about God's plan. His very specific plan. And we learn here that we're prepared. We are sovereignly sovereignly prepared by God for today and tomorrow. How prepared? You've got to love this. God stamped it with His own Spirit. Honestly, it would have been enough for God to say, don't worry, I'll be back. And God could have said that, and that would be sufficient. He could have said, I promise I'll be back. But He didn't just promise. He pledged to prepare us for His purpose and fulfill that purpose. And He backed His pledge with Himself. Think about that. His Spirit was His own pledge. It was the seal, the down payment, the guarantee. All these words we're we're used to if we've studied this topic before. When I made an offer on a piece of land some 12 years ago, I gave the seller $1,000 earnest money. But I didn't give them my own life. Why? Because the property is not worth that much. But God gave His own Spirit as the earnest of our salvation. For one, that's how much we're worth to Him. Ponder that. Secondly, that's how committed He is to preparing us well. And third, that's how important His purpose is. He didn't back all this with a million dollars or a billion or a trillion. He backed it with the spirit of the creator of the universe. The sustainer of life. Chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. Now he who establishes us with you in in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Praise God. Think about this. Praise God for the value and the certainty He places on His plan for our life. Verse 6, Therefore, and we know what that word means, since everything stated prior is absolutely true, therefore, Paul says, being always of good courage. Notice, Paul just changed the tone of his voice. He just flipped a switch from the negative of chapter 4 and prior to the positive here in chapter 5. Instead of saying, we do not lose heart, we don't give up, we're not going to faint, he now says, we're always of good courage. He's ramping up here. And notice, this good courage is a state of being. We don't just think courageous thoughts. We don't just talk courage. We don't just hope for courage. We are courage. And we are always being of good courage. We have strong confidence moving forward. And the verse continues. And knowing, there's that supreme confidence again, that faith-based certainty, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. Now that's not where I would have expected Paul to go right here as he's ramping up. Knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. Paul, it makes no sense. What good encouragement is there in reminding us that we are absent from the Lord? We know that. We're groaning already. I have to chuckle. 
And I have to think that Paul is simply reminding himself and us that this isn't heaven. This isn't our best body. This isn't the best happiness. This isn't the good life. The best is yet to come. How often we sink into depression and despair and discouragement and lose hope because we look around at our circumstances and think, this is the pits. When we should be thinking, this is the pits. This is pain. This does hurt. There is evil out there. Sin does burn. We have good reason to cry and to groan. And Paul winsomely reminds us, while we're at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. This isn't heaven, folks. Can you hear Paul saying this? This is the battlefield. This isn't the comfort zone. This is the mission field. We're carrying a cross, not a cappuccino. We're here to die for Christ, not to live for self, because the best is yet to come. And that reminder gives courage. Verse 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Paul's reminding, of, uh, reminding us of what he just said a few sentences ago in the last two verses of the prior chapter. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look, not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Again, we only see that eternal weight of glory in verse 17 if we're doing the while of verse 18. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. Problems get small, and the hope of glory gets very large when we see past the present into the eternal, past the physical into the spiritual, and only faith can see that way. Only faith sees the heavenly building instead of the earthly tent. Only faith sees the preparation, the purpose, and the pledge, and banks on those. Only faith groans with courage. And faith doesn't just change the mind, it changes the walk, Paul says, the life. We walk by faith, not just think by faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. Verse 8, he says, we are of good courage, I say. I love that. Paul repeats this courage point. Two groans get two good courages. We are of good courage, I say. I just hear Paul. I said it once and I'll say it again. We are of good courage. Lest there be any doubt, we aren't just hanging in there. There's none of this, I guess I won't give up. At least not today. Paul says, no, we've got courage. And it's not just courage. It's the good kind of courage. That's the courage that beats the lesser courage. It's the premium version. It's the divine version that lasts all the way to the end of the course. It's the more than conqueror's kind that Paul spoke of. And the verse continues, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Paul's writing is so smooth. That's not the one-liner I would have expected again right there. And prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. That's Paul saying, and just for the record, I'd rather not even be here with all you rascals right now. That's the, the New Rogers translation. Very loose translation. 
The best is yet to come. It is good and healthy. Are we hearing it? It is good and healthy to long for heaven. That is a proper expectation. It is a proper preference. But don't long for eternity without courage in the now. You can see where we got the title for today's study. Preference for heaven, courage for now. Don't try to live life with one and not the other. You flip that whichever way you like. You'll see either way we lose balance. We lose strength. Believers need both. They thrive on both. What a realistic way of looking at every trial and blessing that God allows to come across our path. Paul had his eyes focused on heaven and he had his feet, his marching boots, firmly planted on the earth. Verse 9, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. There's another therefore. Seeing all of that to be true, again, we also have as our ambition, whether now or later, here or there, to be pleasing to God. Our life mission is to please God. But did we know that our heavenly ambition is not to please self? Our chief, our chief goal will not change when we get to heaven. The goal on earth is not to please self and neither is the goal of heaven. Look at what you can get in heaven is not the primary purpose or motivation of the gospel. On the contrary, it's all about pleasing God. This is the heart of worship. This is the evidence of spiritual growth and understanding and sanctification. Now let's not swing the pendulum out of biblical balance. God indeed entices us with the glories and pleasures of heaven that will undoubtedly bless our socks off. They actually bless our earthly bodies right off, right? But as we grow in our faith and understanding of Scripture, and as we grow in our relationship with God, both heaven and earth become less and less about us and more and more about God. Yes, we are the recipients of the manifold blessings of heaven, both now and forevermore. But the buck doesn't stop with us. It ends with the glory and the pure pleasure of God, whatever makes God most happy, in the truest sense of that word. The focus of our good courage is not ultimately about enduring suffering. It's not even to make it to heaven. It's to please God, to allow His grace in us to satisfy Himself and bring joy to His heart. 1 Thessalonians 4.1 Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction on as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. We also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. Don't you love the Word of God? And the hope that it gives, the vision it gives, the direction it gives. And it's not just a knowledgeable direction. This is a spiritual empowering. This is a physical empowering. God does miracles when faith is placed in Him. May our faith, 
May our desire to walk and to please God excel still more and more. Let me close with a bridge verse to next Sunday. Hebrews 11. Many of you know this verse well. Verse 6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to do what? To please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Look at verse 10 in our text today. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Paul drops another massive weight onto the table here. A major reason to put on the glasses of Scripture, the lens of the Word, the eyes of faith, because the judgment seat of Christ is going to come. Lord willing, next Sunday we'll study that verse and further into chapter 5. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are amazing. When we read these words, you open our our eyes to the glories of God. Where else can we go for eternal truths? Who else has already been in eternity? Who else has seen it? Who else understands it? Who else governs it? You are an awesome, sovereign God. But you are not just a God. You are our God. And we affirm that with our little bit of faith. We affirm that today. Lord, you are my God. As a church family, we say, you are our God. And you have a very specific purpose for our individual lives and our corporate church, the life of our corporate church family. You have a very specific purpose and you are preparing us well for it. And we rejoice. We find strength and hope and joy in knowing that your Holy Spirit guarantees it. Yes, indeed, through the eyes of faith, our trials do get smaller. Our groanings are put in perspective. Thank you, Lord. We love you and we trust you. We pray these things in our precious Savior's name, Jesus. Amen.